0: Welcome to the Smart Talk Series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk Series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today was recorded in August of 2023. Our talk is hosted by myself, Nathan Green, a researcher here at the Henry George School, and our guest, Dr. Alexander Gavorkian. Often, when we talk about competition between two nations, the US and China is a perfect example for today, uh, we get arguments that are boiled down to broad ideas like East and West or capitalism versus communism, but when we do this, we often lose a lot of nuance and miss some important details within this discussion. Not too long ago, the US and the West were competing with the USSR, and they pooled their resources towards containing the spread of communism. Fast forward to now, and some of the satellite states and former Soviet Union nations have turned into development success stories. Nations like Poland have increased their GDP by 179% since the fall of the USSR in 1990. Estonia's GDP, for example, in 1995 was $3,134. In 2021, it was just below $28,000. Dr. Gavorkian received his bachelor's degree in international trade and finance from Louisiana State University, two masters in economics from the New School and Louisiana State University, and his PhD in economics from the New School. He is an expert on Central Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union economies. He is the author of numerous journals and articles, as well as the author of two books, Transition Economies and Financial Deepening and Post-Crisis Development in Emerging Markets. He is a professor and Henry George Chair of Economics at St. John's University, as well as a member here at the Henry George School. Together, we discuss some recent economic and political trends within the region, changes to the overall base and superstructure of these societies, and why a polycrisis may not be as bad as it seems in the moment. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Professor Alexander Govorkian, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) So today I was hoping to talk about some of the different development models for the Southeastern Europe and former Soviet Union nations and just give our listeners a kind of context of what's going on within the region and some of the trends that have developed lately in a recent interview with martin wolf on the ezra klein show he talked about his analytical framework where he observes shifts and shocks within nations the shifts being gradual changes over time so for example the world becoming more dependent on china Shocks being more short-term disruptions that really change a lot of the structures so I was just wondering, what are some of the different shifts and what are some of the different shocks that you've noticed um, in the region over the past few years?
1: Well, Nathan, this is an interesting question. To start with, um, I have to go and listen to that podcast because I think that's an interesting analogy that you, you mentioned—the you know, shifts and the shocks—and for the region, I think the way to approach this is to see to is to view the region. Not um, as a on, on its own isolated group, but as something that is integrated within the global economy, global community. So that's where we can talk about shifts and shocks on the global scale and on the regional scale. Think, I have to think about this one. Um, the shift is probably more of a global nature, and that is the. Uh, global rising global competition between the sort of the industrial and economic systems of the world we know let's say from the work of our friend Branko Milanovic about the two uh, types of capitalism right that he talks about the uh, autocratic metocratic and I think that has to that that has some um, relevance here as well essentially the industrial competition between the the it's in the largest economic systems. But there's also, of course, uh, the local developments, and the local developments would probably be more related as shocks, referred to as shocks. The one misunderstanding about the 1990s transition process that is often repeated, um, but it does betray the speakers or whoever uh, the commentator is, somewhat limited view of that uh, history, and that is that uh, it is often repeated that there was a early in the 90s, the local uh, conflicts on the ethnic, religious, or whatever basis, po- other political uh, questions, would erupt into full-scale wars, right? And um, we can look at Central Asia, we can look at the Caucasus, but of course also in the Balkans. And those may seem as local events, but they're prompted by global shifts. I'm going to call it, for, I'll just say, for your first question, I'll try to be very general for now, but uh, the global shifts, uh which then pushed these lo- local shocks and then in- effectively they then determine the outcomes. And so we had a somewhat of a, uh, an uneasy balance uh, for 30 years, for example, if you look at the Caucasus, and then in um, 2020, things started to change in the South Caucasus. Now, the next question, though, is where this would lead us to, and that's a much more difficult conversation. Um, a shift, I would agree, it is more profound. It is something that is immediately visible, and we can probably try even to plan with this shift. A shock is often sudden, right, and is hardly expected. And uh, this is where the decision-making process has to be well-trained, and uh, or rather the decision-makers have to be well-trained and prepared to lead in in this situation and and probably react to it. So let's continue the conversation, and I'll probably come up with a bit more concrete examples.
0: Okay. How have these changes affected the superstructures within society, and what are some of the differences that we see today compared to, say, 20 years ago?
1: Okay. So this is where a concrete example, I think, could be relevant. As far as the shifts, right? Since the 1990s, uh, one of the important developments in the societies of uh, eastern europe and former soviet union has been the rise of consumer culture and uh, kind of i would associate that with the development development of capitalism and, and 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 institutions that are related to a capitalist economy starting from private property to contractual agreements to uh, the whole concept of profit making and uh, creating a business for the purposes of making a profit even though today it's also important to talk about you know the second target of a business of a corporation related to the sort of the social impact it's having. But I think this point on the consumer society is also not often brought up in conversations, but it is very important because um, if we can guarantee um, um, sort of uh, um, an affluent or semi-affluent or approaching to affluence level uh, standard of living, Mm -hmm. other questions become somewhat not necessarily secondary but not as uh, essential in the view of the sort of general public and and population um because at the end of the day you know um a comfortable living style is something that and and and, and we perceive safe and such and so on is something that um you know we sort of strive for and that is ultimately the goal we work and then on such mm-hmm. um to ensure that you know we live fruitful lives and so on consume being part of the consumer society is also being part of that um uh thinking and, and part of that um living right uh fruitful and fulfilling life um and that i think is a very important shift because with that comes the demand for certain um well first an expectation and then the demand for for the government of the elites to comply with certain expectations of that larger consumer society. Um, It also may lead, I was reading uh, a discussion uh, on this rise of populist movements. And I think there's an interesting um, piece uh, just the other day uh, came out by um, in Project Syndicate on the rise of uh, populist um, ideas. And I think it sort of comes from that because in Eastern Europe we also notice um, this, uh, not the preference but greater sort of disposition towards these what what is ref- referred to often as populist movements, right? So promises of here's things are going to happen this way and this way we're going to be uh, we're going to be better and, and, and things are going to be improving very quickly. Um, what is interesting is that all these promises are also very similar to the promises of the Soviet times because back then, what was promised was the bliss in the future. Wow. The countries were on their path towards communism, by the way, and at the time they were in transition, which was the socialism stage. So I think that is that is a very important, uh, um, in my opinion, that is an important point to keep in mind, uh, the strengthening and the rise of the consumer societies. And with that, everything that we learned from, let's say, Thurston Veblen, on, speakers, consumption and such. In some ways, in the early uh, 2000s even, um, and I I mentioned this elsewhere, um, those societies were more capitalistic than the societies of Western Europe or North America in terms of the behavior of the firms, of of consumers, and the expectations uh, that were put forward at the time.
0: Right. It seems like a lot of commentators uh, really have a big focus on consumption. For example, I know a lot of people are watching consumption within China as they think that's a key indicator of their development progress. Are there any kind of trends or differences within some of the regions, say like the Baltics versus the Balkans in terms of consumption?
1: So the differences between uh, the countries. All right. Well, I think that 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 is a question to be addressed probably more empirically than conceptually, um, and um, I would have to think uh, who may have done this, but um, I think it's the different. The difference here is going to be in terms of the level of spending, and um, now we can get to even sort of brand recognition topics and such. But of course, the Baltics are part of the European Union. Uh, um, the, Balkans there as well, but yeah. So I think uh, it's it's an interesting behavioral economics question. Um, and as far as the differences, we m- may sort of think in terms of um, the general um, standard of living, right, and the difference in there. So the southeastern Europe, the Balkans, things slightly different than um, in, in the Baltics. But then the Baltics have also smaller uh, populations, or sort of, that matters, right, in terms of um, and then smaller and but generally they're similar sized countries i also I, I tend to pay attention to geography as well and so in, in both cases really what helps is that they're both uh, both sort of these regions are very very close to europe and european union and some being part of european union so i think my point with consumption is more about the trend that there's a general development of preference for things that are better, uh, better quality. Uh, there's a diverse uh, um, kind of number of items to choose from and so on. Uh, there may also be a difference in lifestyle, I don't know, in terms of how you spend your free time and such. That is also a luxury, by the way. If you have uh, an opportunity to decide on how you'd like to spend your free time after work, do you run to another job or not? And that also, to, I guess, in my wording, that also enters into this definition of consumer culture because now you, uh, as an individual, someone who has a job and a good-paying job, you start seeing yourself um, sort of even spending. You're spending time at restaurants, cafes with friends mm-hmm. as part of maximizing your utility, speaking in the econ talk. Um, and what is interesting. I think maybe that's the point. Um, is that uh, that that is relevant to your question? And that is that we know about the large migration rates out of the countries uh, from the Balkans, but also from the Baltics, right? Um, in the nineties and also part of two, early two thousands. Um, the rate of out migration is not exactly the same these days, right? mm-hmm. because. Because of that maturing, I would say of the economies and more or less macroeconomic stabilization, and with that the rise of you know the, the, the consumer culture and the fact that people can afford to spend, of course, introduction of credit, sort of these the, the financial instruments that we take for granted in the West being introduced over the course of the past thirty years, um, help promote this in some ways, healthier, sometimes riskier uh, uh, sort of consumer culture, because riskier in the sense that people tend to overborrow and sometimes forget to pay back and all sorts of problems arise from that. But the fact that you can actually work and uh, as a specialist, uh, the IT sector is one of the leading ones, but also other say uh, architects, uh, architects, designers and such, and receive contract and payment let's say from the European Union or anywhere else that uh, raises your um, living standard right your um, uh, level of income. but the quality of life remains something that you're familiar with so you there's a lower propensity to migrate because of the economic reasons. people may be migrating for political reasons still but for economic reasons, those who are in, the, in this professional areas, especially the faster developing sectors are actually doing okay because they work full day. They go uh, to, uh, you know, uh, whatever, what did I say? The cafes, restaurants and such, or whatever, mm-hmm. every time with friends. And then you take a week off and you go to Paris or you go to Rome and then you come back. And I th- overall, I don't think that's a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and maybe that's the, the whole point
0: <laughs> what was the point, we'll, we'll find out later. Hmm. So I know during the pandemic, we saw a very large movement of people across borders. Do you think this outward migration is going to continue? And if so, what kind of impact do you think that will have within some of these regions?
1: So I mentioned that the migration was lower, but uh, indeed there was migration, uh, but on a more temporary basis. Uh, for example, during the pandemic, uh, what, I think what you're referring to, there were sort of airlifts of let's say workers from Romania to Germany to work in the fields, uh, Germany, because there's a seasonal demand for agricultural workers. Um, that is also another way of sort of uh, compensating for the lack of other opportunities and to establish uh, and establishing a higher living standard for the for individual or personal families because again these days integrating into more advanced economies without the education but coming from let's say Eastern European countries or or I don't know, some of the former Soviet Union countries may not be such a, 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 a alluring and, and uh, tempting idea for everyone um, but the seasonal work is something that actually, uh, is a good compromise, right? Because you're only away from home for a few months and then you come back um, and wait for the next sort of trip. One of the countries that is really sort of at the forefront of this movement is Moldova, of course, because they have, um, for the past almost 15, 20 years, they've seen um, significant migration out of the country, but also there's been a return and kind of a rotationary uh, system of migration with temporary workers moving to Romania, Italy, primarily working in the, um, let's say, a hospitality sector, but also in construction, sort of the usual jobs that labor migrants pick up uh, are in services and those type of sectors. Um, but retaining very close, those migrants retaining very very close connection with their country, and um, um, some of the surveys I've read suggested that majority of them were thinking about coming back and were preparing grounds for for their return by sending money and we can talk about that as well if you like different ways how money was being sent to um, back to specific villages and not just the relatives but to improve the the villages the regions where those migrants were from so as far as are we going to see more of that Uh, this is a very difficult question clearly Uh, we are living through very difficult times and um, uh, it doesn't help that, uh, uh, you know, there's uh, combat activities happening uh, across the world, in Europe and the Caucasus as well. Um, And, um, you know, what happened, uh, let's say, in in Armenia and and the the region called Artsaf in October 2020 was somewhat ignored by the world, but it displaced uh, several thousand people. I think the number is about 80,000 people. And now there's a a siege-like condition for another 120,000 people. Um, So what's going to happen with that? It's very uh, unclear. What's happening in Ukraine is uh, already has contributed to a large rise of migrants, uh, people migrating, rather. Sometimes when we say migrants, we tend to stereotype that with um, sort of well, let's not stereotype this but basically people escaping uh right um uh, the, the tragedy uh, and, and the war sort of that they're facing and trying to save their lives uh, and find new place to live so it's hard to tell right and on the global scale especially so um but the one thing i would always repeat is that you know, however, whatever one's views are on migration uh, we should remember it doesn't really happen out of luxury. <laughs> Very few, other than maybe the movie stars, but even them, I'm not sure would be moving and and changing their countries, established ways of lives, living, leaving their families and their houses aside for you know, some type of uh, a luxury-like uh, ideas. Usually, it's a push. Uh, there are some push factors that push people out of their native lands. And
0: we really have to understand that very carefully. Again, cannot give you a prediction on this. Right. To paraphrase John Maynard Keynes, the job of economic forecasts is to make astrology look more scientific. Um... Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Kind of going back to this idea of shocks and shifts, I always heard this term, the grade moderation, meaning that uh, the boom and bust cycles, at least in developed nations, had been kind of smoothed out. And But ever since graduating colleges, it seems like we've loomed from one crisis to another. I mean, there was the supply chain snows. Now we have inflation. We have the conflict with Russia and Ukraine. It just seems like there's so many different crises going on right now. Are we in a polycrisis, and if so, how has that affected some of the nations within these regions? Yeah, the polycrisis is a term introduced by Adam Toos, which I liked,
1: um, but it, you know, there's similar ideas out there, but just throughout the term, and, and we sort of all picked up on it. I think it's an interesting proposal. There's always a polycrisis, I would say, from the perspective of the present times. We always tend to think of us, the times we're living in as being somewhat exclusive and such. But then you and I both are students of history. Tremendous respect and appreciation for history. And if we just pick any decade, we will find a similar polycrisis happening. The question is probably not about, well, not the question, but the problem to think about is not necessarily what type of crisis we're going through, but actually what we've learned from the past. Crisis and uh, how those lessons can be applied um, in resolving whatever situation we're dealing with right now. But the, you know, for us to get into that conversation, we need a separate podcast. So we, let's leave this on the on this general note, maybe for, for a moment. Uh, but um, what is different though, um, and this is the lesson from history, probably. Uh, what is different though about the the crisis, the different crises that we're facing uh, these days is how fast they're happening and they're unraveling, right? And the uh, magnitude uh, and the scale of their impact in economic terms and human terms, within day, thousands of people are suffering uh, from all sorts of events. Add to that also, of course, the climate change uh, and the uh, everything that's happening with that, right? Um But this is what I meant when I mentioned about the decision makers being prepared to react to the shocks. And that is that these days, whoever is in charge of making decisions elected or however, um, this group of people has to either rely on somebody who's knowledgeable about history, not for the purpose of just knowing history, but actually learning from it or themselves be well-rounded and educated to kind of draw these objective and adequate lessons from history. Um, again, I'm not pretending that we can resolve all of this now within five minutes, uh, but this is just a general uh, view on this. In, in, there are a couple of papers that I've uh, co-authored, if I may bring that up. One is, um, for some reason, relatively popular, but that one discovers what's known as the contrative waves. Um, the long waves or Kondratov waves. Um, there was a, an economist, um, well, in the early 20th century um, in Russia, um, at the time then, Soviet Union, wait, whose name, uh, this, is, this is now, right? This has become now. Uh, in one of the papers, we talk about the Kondratov waves uh, named after Nikolai Kondrativ, early 20th century, who looked at um, the economic shocks that were happening And uh, the way he did that was looked at the um, uh, changes in prices going back into something like 18th century uh, over periods of time on uh, the top commodities, sort of things like at the time, agricultural commodities, uh, oil, uh, big iron, things like that. Um, And what he discovered was that every 50 to 70 years, there seems to be some sort of a shock in the global economy. Uh, and that's when the shift happens, um, actually. Um, and uh, he attributed all these shifts and, and this really revolutionary in the sense that there are profound changes to a few factors, such as appearance of new technology and evolution of new technology, and the fact that the world needs and the global economy needs time to uh, adapt to the new technology. And then the time there's a need for time to adopt this technology, uh, then there's um, the, the clearly the wars, the revolutions, appearance of new countries on the map of the world. And again, that's a whole separate political science conversation about new countries appearing on, on the map of the world, which is very much relevant in the e- case of Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union, another interesting topic. And then, of course, uh, the fluctuations in the price of uh, gold. And today we can talk about, or we can mention, changes in prices of gold or changes in prices of crude oil, Mm -hmm. as being those determinants that may, um, in some sort of sporadic ad hoc nature, um, significantly impact um, the state in which the global economy is, right? And this is where the competition for resources becomes Renewed, even though it is something again that comes from the ages of the old empires of the time. Going back to your question, this idea of contraptive waves or long waves is a very compelling idea. And uh, around 2008, that's when there's a flurry of new studies trying to determine whether or not we fit that period and fits into the sort of the system, and and come up with some sort of a prediction. And indeed, you could say you know 2008 is the global financial crisis is uh, one of those most significant um, economic shocks, which happens after World War II, and that's roughly 50, 60 something years away. So it sort of fits the model. So I guess expect the next one within another 60 years or so. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm looking forward (laughs) to (laughs) it. Well, no, (laughs) Uh, hopefully. But this is the thing hopefully we we'll learn something from this. Maybe there is no such uh, uh, consistency, but at least there's a uh, proposition that there may be, but that's enough of a ground to start learning and preparing for the price. And different economists have been talking talking about this in different terms. Um, of course, in financial field, um, there's clearly the work of Hyman Minsky. There's the work of Hyman Minsky, right? of course, who talked about the fragility and how Uh, We tend, uh, in the financial sector, there's a tendency to undervalue the risk. Right. right? So, in fact, in that paper, we also, when we talk about the different crisis um, uh, situations um, and scenarios, uh, we go from Kondrativ, then we go to discussion of Hyman Minsky's. And so it's all very interesting. But in a more recent paper, um, I worked on... um, I think we published it in 2020. We did uh, an analysis of um, impact that new technology has on, on, on the economy. And um, also, we looked at how uh, the the question of new technology was viewed and studied back in starting with, let's say, late 18th century and such. Um, and there seems to be a certain, again, consistency here, because the authors, the economists, classical economists of the time um, would have clearly would have their uh, opinions and attitudes on, on, the, on the subject, gradually sort of uh, converging to the view that look it's it's a tra- transitory stage. It's not it's not meant to be easy, but we have to figure out how to get through it and then eventually it simplifies things. In fact, new technology, let's say artificial intelligence, we can consider that at first we'll work as uh, we'll have this destruct destructive capacity right it will be sort of speaking in those terms we'll be destroying jobs certain jobs but eventually it will be create leading to creation of new jobs who would have thought we would have a podcast 20 years ago as a uh, as as a form of say of, of employment right so uh, or the influences and such those are common use commonly used examples and um since you mentioned Keynes, his essay, The Economic Future of Our Grandchildren, if I got the title correctly, um, right? He talks about how the economic question, the economic problem will be resolved in the future, meaning that uh, the economic problem, meaning that we, as humans, uh, we need to figure out a way how to provide for at least the basic or fulfilling even uh, standard of living. And with the rise of automation, with the rise of the technology, The economic problem will be resolved and we will live more well, we'll have more time to pursue other interests in life uh, in a positive sense, sort of development and such and so on. So, yes, there are multiple crises happening. Uh, Yes, it may be a power crisis. Um, But the thing is, we've been through similar situations before. What we need now is the resolve to actually get through this current stage. And in my opinion, that comes from all the major sort of involved
0: parties actually coming together. But I'm very naive. So so one response I've noticed to arguably the most important crisis of the 2020s, uh, COVID, of course, was a lot of countries, especially in advanced nations, uh, spending billions and billions of dollars um, in order to fix some of the problems that occurred during COVID. But one of the results of that was an increase in the debt that these governments have. So I was wondering, what do some of the debt trends within the region look like? And how do you think that that will impact some of their long-term prospects for development? So, okay, debt
1: is very important. Um, But I mentioned somewhere that what we've also developed is a new system of. If you're talking about Eastern Europe and and former Soviet countries, what we developed, what has developed there over the years, is the new system of credit, the sort of financial credit. Um, it didn't really exist before, which is another thing some economists take for granted. But it didn't really exist there before. There were some rem, uh, some sort of minor uh, beginnings of it, but very much was controlled and and minimal and you know, the stock exchanges are still under development in most of the countries. Um, so what matters here is that um, they have to keep an eye on how much they borrow, of course, um, because at some point it may become unsustainable. I think the latest uh, I looked at the numbers the terms of government debt, depending on the country, right on, on but on average, um, we're relatively okay. There's no magic number here, so that's why I'm hesitant characterizing it one way or another. But none of the countries have their debt that is uh, or government debt that would be over 100% of GDP, which is very different if we look at the advanced economies. For them, the debt-to-GDP ratio is way higher and out of proportion. So perhaps one benefit of having a very strict IMF Um, recovery and stabilization programs in the 90s and early 2000s, one of the outcomes of that has become a very uh, prudent approach to debt management um, and uh, working within the means that are available uh, to these countries. Um, Again, it's a whole separate conversation on debt and small nations. Uh, There's a very interesting book that I reviewed earlier titled, why not default? Um, and it's, you know the approach that the author takes is uh, Jerome was, uh, The the approach that the author takes is very interesting, arguing that there are external pressures not to default, such as very obvious to us, you know, cost of future debt will rise. There will be more scrutiny for any new debt uh, issuance. But there's also an internal pressure, and that comes from the um, from the business community. And in the case of post-socialist countries, the business community is this maturing maturing community that's that's still being established and um, they are trying to get out into the global market. So uh, what happens to the government's debt and which direction it goes will necessarily impact uh, those businesses as well. So there's this mutual interdependence. But having said that, you know, this is again, nothing is a guarantee here and um, we need to be understanding of that and related to this point is that many of the developing countries borrow not for the purposes of paying or uh, high uh, say bonuses or something like that but they borrow for the purposes of significant and and really long-lasting capital projects improvements like infrastructure and so on this is where uh there's a bit of a problem when it comes to our as investors or our or external sort of reviewers um, assessment, because what we're seeing are the numbers. We're seeing, okay, debt has gone up through the roof. But what we should be looking at is the qualitative aspect of that debt. In other words, the position of spending. That has, I think, much more importance and relevance to, or should have a much more importance and relevance to the investors especially if we talk about this term again social responsible investors and such um then simply sort of maximizing returns within a short period of time last year i completed another report uh, with UNDP africa we looked at the credit ratings impact on that um in africa and development in africa and um and we looked at all countries on the continent and um uh, the results were quite controversial, right? So because one could interpret them as um, even minor downgrade or, or a minor statement by one of the three uh, big three credit rating agencies could lead to uh, significant um, um, economic pressures building up in the borrowing country. And the borrowing country is weak in economic terms and so these pressures end up becoming a macro, macroeconomic um, avalanche of things. Mm-hmm. We're in the summer, so I'm thinking in terms of, I should be thinking in terms of floods and rains, but something like that. In other words, something serious from ranging from serious to catastrophic to the, the country's economy. So again, this doesn't mean there should be an open book on that by developing countries, but what when we are assessing the quality and the uh, debt sustainability of the country, we should be looking at the composition of that spending. Because in the long run, a well-built road or uh, running the electric cables and and the electric grid across the country will generate significantly greater output in terms of GDP or however you want to measure employment uh, than simply insisting on repaying the debt on schedule now and uh, taking money away from those big projects. Okay
0: so right. I often think that the debt to GDP ratio, while useful, it's not the end-all be-all and it must be used in greater context with qualitative data, as you said. Do we see any kind of difference in the capacities of these of the nations within this region in terms of their fiscal policy response and how does that affect how they can respond to crises?
1: If we we're talking specifically about the small nations in Eastern Europe and Caucasus and, and Central Asia, then um, their fiscal policy sort of opportunities are very limited. And in the in the in the COVID crisis uh in the first year, I think everyone put in whatever they could. At that time, we were looking at with, with our with one of our colleagues, we were looking at um, some of the options and what could be developing there. And I think we have some estimates there. I don't remember right now, but it's within the range of between something like five to 10% of GDP in terms of fiscal spending that went uh, went on. Uh, there was, from what I recall, there was massive informational campaign, there was a massive uh, healthcare response. What also helped to some extent in some countries was the factor of, or if we, if you want, we can talk about that as well, separately, a factor of diaspora, because um, the expatriate communities living abroad um, Somehow got together and started to provide uh, help uh, in whichever way it was possible, uh, monetary or by sending humanitarian aid um, yeah. or th- th- anything related to healthcare and, and medical equipment and such. To those countries from anywhere from bulgaria romania moldova to armenia and so on
0: so to wrap up our podcast um on the ezra klein show he always asks his guest at the end what are three book recommendations that they have and i have tried to come up with a question that i can ask my guests just to try and understand how they kind of view the world or how they analyze things and so To wrap up the show, my question to you is, if you could change one thing about the world, it can be big or small, what would it be? This is a very difficult question.
1: (laughs) Very meta. I had one book recently released. It's with a group of authors (laughs) (laughs) Uh, titled Foreign Exchange, Constraint and um, Developing Economies. And of course, I'm speaking from my own book on Transition Economies. But um, the one thing that i would change in this world i mean can we take down all the borders and and just abolish all passports and just <laughs> sort of roam freely and everybody goes wherever they want that's very naive of course but um i think we need more seriously i think we need to be more we are but Sometimes in the routine of things we forget, so we need to be more compassionate. We need to continue to develop the empathy uh, within us, and always, always remember, you know, it's one of those infographics every time, every once in a while that comes up. Sort of, here's the iceberg, but all you see is just the tip of the iceberg, and that, you know, there's everyone is carrying their burden and and and, and fighting their struggle. And small nations, and now I'll try to say a few things as an economist, and for the small nations, for the small economies, it's it's an especially difficult task uh, because they are caught in between um, those, what I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, those competitive pressures among industrial supply chains and so on of the world, uh, where a small nation is seen as just a, a factor in the production rather than an integral component. And so this is where... Sort of thinking about these things, actually, I'd like to make this point. Led me to think about those five maybe scenarios for development. If I'd like to mention that. Sure. Um, when I developed them, either in separate, right, in different separate writings uh, recently, in different publications, my thinking was that they, those are not necessarily exclusive or some type of unique proposals, but more of a, an attempt to bring the conversation back into that sort of bring these topics back into the discussion um, in economic development. Economic development recently has been focusing more on micro-issues, but I think we should be thinking more about the macro-issues. And uh, the five scenarios could be that our small nations caught in this poly-crisis situation, or uh, from geopolitical to economic uh, problems, need to think in terms of self-sustainability, right? and economic development. So this can come from big push, which was popular in the after World War II period uh, ideas, sort of a full attempt to become self-sufficient, integrating with existing or new trading partners. That's the second one. And that is in a way that's been happening in Eastern Europe, for example, Um, without naming the countries, but much of Eastern Europe is really, uh, the what we see in terms of their economies and economic performance is, is really a function of U- European Union economy. The fact that those countries are, are geographically closer to European Union, uh, let's say the economy of Germany or France, and have been fully integrated into those economies as well, into the supply chains there. Other countries in the former Soviet Union for the East are not as fortunate The third is just to leave things as they are. And that's a problem because it may work out. It may lead to something more dire situation. The fourth point was a possibility of small nations cooperating with each other. But that would really work only probably in sort of intangible sectors like technology, IT, things like that. And the fifth element is what's become very popular to talk about these days but in a very misinformed way is the element of the diaspora, national diasporas. And this is another conversation, another hour or so long, but it, it is a tempting idea that, here we go, we have some few thousand people who have some type of affiliation with country XYZ. By definition, they should just jump in and help and bring all the resources. Um, back in the 90s, there was a term that was very popular, become the first movers. But the turns out very few become the first movers and the, the movement is not as strong as to bring to the wave of other investors. Or maybe, and that's kind of improvised sixth scenario, maybe all five of these taken together somehow work out. And one way or another, I think what is needed in the case of smaller economies and not probably just post socialist but we can think in terms of Latin America or Africa, it is this strategic approach to development, sort of uh, what South Korea, in a way, what South Korea did, because they're often compared to South Korea, and South Korea really picked its winners. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really interesting work by Alice Amston, Hajun Chang, explaining how that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to summarize, we should stay compassionate and understand other people's struggles, and we should keep talking about macroeconomic development. Uh, in a sense that that's uh, and and economic growth in a sense that that's what brings prosperity stability and uh, peace joseph schumpeter was very hopeful this global uh, rise of global economy and global economic links will bring a uh, long-lasting peace
0: because the economic problem in Keynes' terms would be resolved as well hmm. so i'll leave you with that I could not agree more that we need a more compassionate world, but it's interesting to think about it both on an individual sense, but also on a macroeconomic or a national yeah. sense. So thank you. Uh, Professor Alexander Gavorkin. thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Nathan. All right. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, all right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.